Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Brian Besong is with us today. He's Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Ohio Dominican University, co-editor of a collection of essays that I spotted uh, entitled Faith and Reason. Philosophers explain their turn to Catholicism. Welcome, Professor Besong. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Uh, first of all, just give us a general description of, of the book. What's the topic? Uh, you know, who, who are the contributors? Things like that. Yeah, so uh, the Faith and Reason volume, uh, this is a product of my own conversion and uh, Jonathan Fuquay's conversion. Um, we had run across a large number of both senior and junior colleagues who had, through independent reasons, come to embrace the Catholic faith. Uh, so we tried to uh, get a collection of them that uh, represented a adequate sample of uh, the profession. Um, and so we've got uh, figures like Edward Fazer, Jay Budzeski, uh, Brian Cutter, Neil Judish, Peter Craved, uh, Logan Gage, Rob Coons, uh, Scott and Lindsay Cleveland, Brian Cross, and Candace Vogler. So these are these are going to be um, some who are you know in their the 30s and 40s, and some who are uh, more seniors, uh, senior colleagues of ours, uh, but all of whom have embraced the Catholic faith as adults. And you had the introduction by Francis Beckwith. That's right. Yeah, Francis Beckwith, who um, became a Catholic convert uh, while the president of the Evangelical Philosophical Society. Great. He begins his introduction. Actually, he ends his forward, it's a forward, not an introduction, by saying something that recalls your title and it may be something worth reflecting on. Uh, quote, if your aim is to be rational, you must take faith seriously. What does he mean by that? And, and, maybe, and if you want to give your own interpretation of the faith and reason relationship, uh, please do. Well, there's a thousand ways to take that, and I think all of them are adequate and good. Uh, you know, the contemporary philosophical scene is seriously atheistic. Um, so something like 70% of philosophers, if you take the field broadly, have rejected faith. They've rejected the idea that there is an immaterial soul, uh, that the world is anything but physical matter. And the field is dominated by what you might call a naturalistic uh, puzzle solving. It's just figuring out how to be a consistent materialist about the world and about the person. And so... Uh, a field dominated in this way by an utter rejection of faith, uh, in some ways, well, in many ways, is uh, lacking, is short-sighted. And uh, philosophy has become increasingly enriched by people who have taken their faith seriously, 
Uh, now, not all of these are Catholics, but in uh, the United States in particular, some of the most prominent 20th century philosophers rejected this uh, overwhelming paradigm of the, the discipline, uh, people like Alvin Plantinga and William Alston. Um, and so it's worth for a casual listener to realize that although the, the stereotype of the philosopher today is one who says they embrace reason and for this reason reject faith, uh, increasingly philosophers are becoming aware that in order to, to see the adequate value and direction of reason, they have to see the human person as created by God, destined for a particular final end. And it's through that lens of seeing the human nature as good and not the, the byproduct of uh, blind forces which don't care for truth or goodness, it's only in that way that we can begin to take philosophy and its foundations more seriously. So that's, that's one way to take it. I, there's a lot of ways to take that, that phrase, um, because, you know, in each of the essays, uh, we've got people who, using reason, have come to embrace faith, and once they've embraced faith, the reason is uh, deeply um, expanded upon, enriched, uh, and aided. So you said this statistic, 70% of philosophers professional academic philosophers call themselves atheists. Why aren't they agnostics? Why do they go all the yeah. way with atheism? <laughs> we don't like to do things by halves. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's, you know, it's a good question because, um, you know, in uh, contemporary pop uh, culture, atheism just means a lack of belief in God. But in philosophy, um, we, we mean it in the more robust sense of someone who believes that there is no God. And so, uh, you know, it, it's half-joking to say philosophers don't like to do things by halves. It's also true, you know, let's see, in, in uh, 2014, uh, David Chalmers and uh, a colleague, David Burgett, had uh, published a survey result where they had surveyed the, the people at the top uh, institutions, the most important uh, philosophy, philosophy schools in the United States, and they found that 72.8% of those surveyed were self-declared atheists. So that's, that's a really massive number. And mm -hmm. that, again, is the, um, the stronger position, they think God does not exist. For many of these philosophers, it wasn't a question of being convinced of arguments. Um, for many of these philosophers, it was a sort of sociology of the discipline. As they go through grad school, uh, belief in God was ridiculed, so much so that they... Uh, came to believe or they uh, were encultured into the view that a belief in God is um, something retrograde, something uh, easily demonstrating their irrationality. Mm -hmm. Now, would you say that it is so strong that disbelief in God, that atheism, really maybe from the time of graduate school, young people come to understand that position really as a, a professional trait that yeah. it, it, it really is a disciplinary norm it's, it's not even really a substantive belief you know external to one's academic identity this is part of your academic identity does it go that far i think so yeah i think you know, it's, um, if someone doesn't believe in cause and effect, they're not going to go very far as a physicist. 
And it's not as though in a physics class they explain to undergraduate students, well, look, you have to have these foundations of belief in cause and effect. It just, they come into the classroom, and if they didn't have that belief beforehand, they quickly adopt it as just part of how they do physics. And I think something similar goes on in the assumption of atheism for most professional philosophers, that early in their undergraduate career, uh, they may have been exposed to some uh, very rough versions of arguments for God. These were quickly demolished, and in their place were, were uh, put in, say, uh, arguments from evil. And so, but, but more to the point, it is very palpable in undergraduate and graduate classrooms that belief in God is, is just a non-starter, hmm. uh, unless you've gone to a particular school. But the hmm. dominant uh, 20th century milieu was atheism. Hmm. You've got then a list of people who really are going against the grain of, of their own discipline. And, and each one has something of a story to, to tell. Right. And so why don't we get into uh, a few of those. Uh, the first one is by Edward Fazer, who's a contributor to First Thing. First things. He says he was raised and educated as a Catholic, but interestingly, his slip into atheism was not because uh, there were nuns walking up and down the aisle with rulers in their hands, snapping those kids, those boys' fingers. Uh, right. It was actually kind of the opposite. He found that there was something kind of loose. Well, in, in elementary school, there was that firm conviction about the faith and, and the rules and the doctrine, the dogma. But when he went to high school and then, and then for a year or two after, it was uh, kind of loosey-goosey kind of Catholicism, the, the right. easygoing, and that actually brought on a crisis. Do you find that right. surprising? or uh, have, uh, Do you think that's, a, that's an understandable reaction? Well, I mean, he, he's, uh, it, it's a trope of, uh, I think, a lot of baby boomer Catholics um, that they were raised in a pious household, then they're exposed to some arguments, and they, they've never really been exposed to the intellectual rigors of Catholicism. And so being exposed, uh, Phaser was exposed on the one hand to Protestant objections to unique aspects of his Catholic faith, and then on the yeah. other hand to a sort of uh, naively naturalistic scientific point of view. And the, the combination of these just destroyed his faith. And so I don't think it's a, a surprising reaction at all. I mean, I think we all know uh, family members and um, maybe even siblings and uh, parents who have lost their faith in a very similar way. Um, what's more surprising is if anyone knows someone who's gone that route, usually they've, they've built up a brick wall of defense against any sort of uh, taking their old faith seriously. And so it can be very hard, once they've rejected it, to break through that defense. And so that's what I think is, is more surprising for Fazer is he begins to take it seriously uh, and begins to investigate with an open mind, as it were, and, you know, ends up right back where he began. Hmm. He, he does come back. It's interesting. The, he's, he was almost forced back to it because he had to teach history of philosophy. 
Right. And and so right. he, well, he, he has to work as a philosopher, but something in his own integrity as a teacher said, you know, I can't just blow off these old guys who believed in God. I've gotta I gotta give them some 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 inner feel of what, what, what these guys were saying. Right. Yeah, he, he wants to make his classrooms interesting. And, and my impression is he's a phenomenal teacher for this reason. Uh, he liked his, his classrooms to involve a debate, and uh, he knew that the, the debate for God was pretty lackluster, the way yeah. he was presenting it. So he wanted to bolster it, and he, so he tried to make the, the arguments as good as he could, and he ended up being persuaded that actually they were onto something, and the presentation he had heard of, of these same arguments from years before were terrible. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one of my uh, one of my the re- one of one of the reasons I came back to the faith was reading the Catechism uh, with a, a mentor, just taking it through it almost as an academic exercise, and saying to myself, "Wait a minute." This is very serious, consistent, powerful philosophy. Right. There, there, there are important ideas and concepts here, and they are articulated in very intelligent ways. Uh, and you know, I, I, I never heard one word in my in my graduate school training about the the Catholic Catechism. Uh, I mean, I look. We, we, you know, you could go through English literature, and you could. Re- you can get a degree, a PhD in English literature, and read practically nothing out of the Bible, <laughs> the way it's taught these days. But but yeah, so Phaser, it's interesting you said the word boring. It's boring. One would think that whenever a, uh, I don't want an idea or an ideology or a conviction, a position like atheism becomes, just as you put it, God becomes a non-starter. Doesn't it get boring? Doesn't doesn't right. doesn't it become kind of routine and predictable in the classroom? Well, certainly, and and I think it also guts all the foundations that people uh, will characteristically look to in every philosophical area. There's something instinctive about grounding things in God, and once He's gone, not just is it boring; it seems free floating. Uh, it seems nihilistic, and I think people realize that. And um, you know, even some of our essayists. Uh, embraced that sort of nihilism. Yeah, you, you know, you you wrote the introduction to the book, and you you begin with a, a remark that I bet your students uh, like to hear. But will, will you will you give us a, an exposition of that remark? It's the remark by Tertullian. What indeed has sure. Athens to do with Jerusalem? What what did he mean by that? Well, you know, so. He was living in a time where the the worst forms of Christianity, the the uh, fountain of heresy, was the blending of uh, the pagan philosophical systems with Christianity, and so uh, it it was very fruitful because it, it fruitful as a source of heresy. Because look, you've got all these philosophical schools that have been worked out for centuries. They've got lots and lots of ideas, and so uh, <laughs> there's plenty to mix, as it were, but. Obviously, uh, when you're mixing from paganism, you have to be more careful. And uh, most of the heretics were not being careful at all. They were assuming that the ancient wisdom of the the pagans was superior to the divine revelation of Christ. And so when in doubt, go with the pagans. And so Tertullian's reaction uh, to stick with Jerusalem, that is Christianity, 
over and above the pagan philosophy. It was a completely natural reaction. Um, now, it's, I, I don't know that his attitude towards rational investigation was quite as, as um, pessimistic as the quote makes it sound, but hmm. I think a lot of contemporary Christians probably see in uh, mainline philosophy the same source of fear, uh, of worry, of dilution of the faith rather than reinforcement of it. And, I mean, I think that's reasonable. I, if anything, I think we've got even more reason than Tertullian to be worried about contemporary philosophy. Hmm. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Next in your essay, in your collection, becomes a, an entry by J. Uh, Budajewski, who started childhood not as a Catholic, he was a Baptist. Uh, what caused him in his adolescence to begin to have doubts and, and well, lose his faith? Much like Caesar, uh, he had been exposed to a naively materialistic scientism. Uh, and I think that as an adolescent, he didn't know how Christianity could be complemented by uh, or, in fact, reinforce scientific attitudes. And so he began, and, and this is very similar for many professional philosophers, he began to um, not be reasoned to the conclusion that atheism is true, but to just sort of accept it as a precondition for being scientifically um, rigorous and serious. And so, um, again, he dropped his faith very quickly, and as a college student, um, began, you know, the, the philosophical training without taking seriously his uh, former faith. Hmm. You know, I'll tell you, in English, uh, when I had students over the years, some of the best readers of poetry were the highly religious students, especially the evangelicals. And it was because they read that Bible so carefully. They did exegesis right. of the Bible, very analytical about words, about about metaphors. Uh, so I, I actually uh, appreciate it, even in my, my my atheist days. What what led when Budajewski comes back to Christianity? Why not go back to being a Baptist? What what made him go to Catholicism? I mean, he he actually says he equated Catholicism as a teenager with with the paganism that we've been talking about, the <laughs> worship of idols. Right. Well, his, his first entry into Christianity after the, the uh, atheistic nihilism uh, of his even early career uh, was as an Episcopalian. And so he saw in the, the communion uh, some expression of the goodness and beauty that he had, uh, that had moved him out of the value-free uh, atheism he had embraced before, uh, and he was an Episcopalian for quite a few years, and it wasn't until the uh, the crises that shook the Anglican and Episcopalian communion, uh, crises about morality, about the reality of Christ in the Eucharist, 
it wasn't until uh, he was shaken by those that he began to look deeper for foundational explanations. Uh, and so Catholicism uh, stood out as the more perfect version, the, the communion that corrected the, all the mistakes that he could see in Episcopalianism. And so, of course, there's always going to be objections, and he had to work through the objections that he had uh, to the Catholic faith. But it, he saw in uh, all of the other forms of Christianity uh, greater problems than he saw in Catholicism. So he was motivated to figure out what's going on. Yeah. But Brian, I should ask you, do you want to talk about your conversion? You don't go into it deeply in, in your introduction. What was your conversion to Catholicism? What, what, what prompted that? Where were you before? Yeah, so I was raised uh, a Southern Baptist in Texas, and uh, as a Southern Baptist, I was exposed to uh, Calvinistic ideas, which in my mind had been uh, the more rigorous form of Christianity, more rigorous theologically than I had been exposed to as a Baptist. And so I began to embrace this Calvinistic idea, uh, which led me to become a Presbyterian in high school and to uh, go to Calvin College for my undergraduate, where I plan to study theology and philosophy. But in my Calvinistic upbringing, as it were, um, I took very seriously the idea that uh, justification, justification, that is how I stand before God, is an imputed status. It's something that is just sort of um, declared regarding me, uh, but it's nothing internal or intrinsic. Uh, though there are intrinsic changes that is not the basis of how I stand before God. And so that, that view of justification give, gives great liberty. In fact, this was the motivation, or arguably a motivation, Luther had for embracing this, this new idea. Um, but it, it actually led, this liberty, uh, led to a genuine lack of motivation to be a good person. And so this, this view about justification increasingly corrupted my behavior. Now, of course, my passions and my weakness of will played a, a big role, but it was in the absence of any real reason to care uh, that I could rationalize all this bad behavior. So my college years were spent uh, profligately. And um, it, I met a Catholic, and <laughs> it's not, you know, story over. I planned on converting her to Protestantism, uh, she, like Phaser, like my father, had uh, been raised in a, a Catholic household, but one that was not very rigorous in its uh, catechesis. And so I, I thought, you know, she'd be a pushover. Um, and so we got married in the Catholic Church. But what ended up, um, what I thought would be a, an easy story, um, we, neither of us began to go to church um, because she didn't like my Protestantism and I didn't like her Catholicism. And so uh, you, you read the Catechism, and I feel sort of silly because I read the book Catholicism for Dummies. <laughs> and, uh, now it's, well, I, um, I, I had a lot of help, so I had a lot of coaching. Well, I, I, I wish that I had read the Catechism. I think that would make for a better story for a professional philosopher. But um, if, if a Catholic uh, for Dummies book showed the substance, um, it, it only... So I, I read in that book such great weight and substance in Catholic theology as to completely take me off guard. Um, I know I was just reading out of curiosity, um, 
but I, I realized that although I had been raised to think of Catholicism like this uh, antiquated relic of European culture, this like Lederhosen, um, I, I began to see, in fact, that it had massive substance uh, and intellectual weight. And so I began to think of it at least as an option, though I had many objections. And uh, it wasn't until I began to read uh, the writings of the early church and about the early church and earliest Christianity that I realized that my starting point, the epistemology that I was going with, was all mistaken. So, of course, I had been raised to think it's the Bible is our primary and unique source of settling doctrine. But when I looked at the early church, it wasn't through reading the Bible that they settled disputes. Rather, it was by appeal to the local magisterium, to the bishop and the ordinary. Uh, and so realizing that if this is how early Christianity settled doctrine, I was, I was mistaken to think I could just read the Bible on my own and figure things out. And so uh, seeing how, how fundamentally Catholic early Christianity was quickly persuaded me that I had been mistaken. And of course, this background weight of guilt I had for living a, a profligate life based on my broadly Calvinistic notions of justification quickly pushed me to embrace the Catholic faith. Hmm. Okay, Brian, your next contributor is Brian Cutter, who didn't really have much religious exposure at all as a youth. He says he started grad school as an atheist and, and a naturalist, but uh, at grad school, that that's pretty late. Um, and he... Two years later, he was a Christian, and one year after that, he was a Catholic. What, what was his story? Right. Well, you know, Brian Cutter, is, is, um, his story is very interesting. Uh, so a lot of the, the arguments that persuaded people to become Catholic or to become theist uh, are not necessarily the traditional arguments. So um, Budaszewski seems to have been, in some deep level, persuaded by beauty, and Cutter, in turn, seems to have been convinced much more by the existence of consciousness. And so these are, as it were, untraditional arguments for embracing theism. Uh, but increasingly, uh, Brian Cutter uh, began to see problems in his naturalistic puzzle-solving mentality, that the methods for doing philosophy uh, seemed to, to be different than the methods he had embraced just uh, as a default assumption uh, through his graduate training, but more concretely, it was uh, the problems with consciousness that showed him that there's got to be more to the world than stuff that takes up space. And so uh, this quickly led him to theism broadly, um, and Christianity had always had an appeal for him uh, for various reasons, um, and so he looked, once he embraced God's existence, to Christianity like Caesar did too, he looked at available world religions, um, but it was Catholicism uniquely that stood out for Cutter uh, because of its um, explanation of authority and uh, its reasonable positions, for instance, about scripture, uh, among other areas that make more sense on the Catholic paradigm than as a Protestant. Let's jump ahead to another contributor who actually has been on the podcast, Peter Kreeft. He grows up in the Reformed Church. He, like you, becomes a, a student, is a student of, of Calvin, and he has many reservations when he's young about the Catholic Church. 
What, what is his story? How did he get around those reservations? Well, I love Krejci because he, like I, both went to Calvin College for undergraduate. So now it may have been 40 years apart, but uh, we're both alums. And so he, uh, he always had had, has had a philosophical bent to his mind. You know, the, the, the title of his essay is Why? And uh, it reflects his um, persistent attitude to figure out what are the foundations, what, what explains what I believe, um, and are those foundations adequate? And it was this philosophical bent to his mind, along with some external challenges to his Protestantism, that made him think more seriously about the historic church compared to the relatively recent church that he belonged to, um, the Dutch Calvinistic uh, church that, that uh, is associated with Calvin College. And so he was uh, challenged in some of his theology classes to think about where the church comes from, why we believe what we believe. And it turns out as he was working through these questions of why, um, he began to see increasingly how the Catholic alternatives made more sense, uh, that they had a better answer to why than all of the ones that he had been raised to believe. He cites a, a line from Cardinal Newman, quote, to be deep in history is to cease being a Protestant. What, is, right. what does Newman mean by that? Well, Newman's story is, is uh, well known as he begins, begins to read very deeply about the early church. He realizes just how Catholic it is and how even the so-called via media of the Anglican communion, this middle ground, um, is a disservice to the earliest Christianity. And I think something similar happens uh, as Christ begins to look into the early church. He sees how uh, the early, earliest Christianity is the Catholic faith. Um, and so to, to look at the earliest Christians and to think other than they're mistaken, you have to be Catholic. Because it is the Catholic faith from the beginning forward. And so if you're going to take them seriously as authentic representatives of the Christianity that Jesus gave us, Catholicism is the only real option. The next entry is Logan Paul Gage. And he, he has a little uh, uh, phrase in there that I wanted to ask you about. He, uh, he le when he leaves college, he moves to Washington, D.C., that, uh, that fen of political activity. <laughs> and he says, quote, the Catholic question increasingly bothered me. And he puts the Catholic question in quotation marks. What, what, is, what is the Catholic question there? Well, the Catholic question is, should I take it seriously? <laughs> it, it has a claim to truth. It has a claim to exclusivity. And like Christ, you know, it's this sort of trilemma. Is he crazy? Is he a liar? Like in, in a very similar way, Catholics' claims to exclusively represent the Christianity Christ gave us, you have to take it seriously. You have to sort of answer this question in my head. Is that claim correct? And, uh, or are they mistaken? It's not like denominational Christianity where, okay, this is one flavor, but we've got 31 more. Um, it, it is something exclusive and unique. And, uh, you know, as he was in D.C., he first encountered a serious, intellectually weighty Catholic uh, who challenged him and many of his assumptions about uh, sort of the quote-unquote idolatry of uh, Marian uh, devotion and a, a large range of other uniquely Catholic ideas. Mm -hmm. 
there, there are other contributors in the book. I would like to discuss them. They include, as you, as you said, Robert, Robert Coons and Brian Cross. Uh, but final question uh, for our time here. Uh, Brian, do you think 10 years from now, we will have more professional academic philosophers who are believers in God, not necessarily Catholicism, Christianity, who are believers in, in divinity, more than that 70% unbelievers now. Will that change significantly in the next 10 years? Yes. I, I think with confidence I could say yes. The, the movement's already in that direction. So millennial and Gen Z uh, philosophers are much more open to the existence of God, to the rejection of it. I mean, look, it, it, it's the, the mode of every new generation is to question the sacred cows of the former generation. And the sacred cow, the undefended and somewhat assumptive claim of uh, the greatest generation philosophers was atheism. And so increasingly with each new generation, there's a willingness to prod that sacred cow and see how how robust it is. And so, you know, I think you see this with Gen X, with uh, Millennial, with Gen Z. Increasingly, there is a willingness to take it seriously. And uh, the question's not, will it increase? I think that's a definite. The question is how much the sociology of contemporary universities and philosophy departments will allow people to be openly theistic and to be traditionally religiously minded because there's a lot of pressures, not just within departments, because there there um, are those pressures too, but within administrations to be sort of uh, hip with the times and that the sort of wokeness milieu pushes pretty strongly against the religiously minded philosophers. The book is Faith and Reason. Philosophers explain their turn to Catholicism. Professor Bassong, thank you for joining us. Thanks again, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.